I believe in love at first sight for houses, but not for people. Danielle Steele. Welcome to Solving the Financial Puzzle, where we seek to unravel the mysteries of personal finance. Join us as we help you put together the pieces of your own financial puzzle. This is Solving the Financial Puzzle with certified financial planner, Dan Capril. Hello, this is Dan Capril, and welcome to another edition of Solving the Financial Puzzle podcast, where each and every week, we attempt to take that which many people believe is complicated, personal finance, and show you, you know what, it's really not that bad. As long as you understand some basics, as long as you give up the idea that the future is predictable, as long as you feel that following the law is a good idea, then you're going to find it to be not all that complicated. It's when we try to skirt the IRS elite, you know, in less than honorable ways, or we um, think we can predict the future, that's usually where people get in trouble. That's usually where people make mistakes. Uh, another area where we tend to make mistakes is we get a little fearful, and we have to balance that as well. I hope you're all getting through the dog days of summer here in Cincinnati. It is quite, quite hot. I live in a concrete jungle, so it seems like it's even hotter. This is usually a time where we have to be somewhat mindful of utility bills. They can catch you by surprise if you're not careful. There are those of you who tend to will deal with this issue of rising utility bills by adopting the budget system, where you pay a set amount every single month, and then I guess the utility company uses it to uh, establish your rates for the following year. Personally, I'm not a big fan of that approach. I think you probably will end up paying more. I think if you instead just monitor your utilities, especially when you're not in the house, you're going to probably find you're going to be able to keep the costs down even more than any of type of the budgeting plan. But some people like the structure. It's kind of like sometimes people get excited when they get a tax refund. They think, oh, this is great. I'm getting money back. And I always try to point out to them that, you well, know, that means you overpaid. I mean, you gave Uncle Sam more money than you had to, and he's not going to give it back to you in any interest. So personally, I, I'm not a big fan of the, the budget bill system with utilities. I think if you take the time to monitor your usage, again, particularly when you're not there in the evenings, I mean, the wintertime, obviously, if you got blankets and stuff like that, you can make it a little bit colder in your house. And, you know, it comes to air conditioning. I mean, look, you got to you got to protect yourself during the super, super hot months. But just be mindful of it. If electricity prices, if they ever go up again, well, then you're going to start to see the you know, overall costs rise. So just, just be aware as we go forward. Sometimes the budgeting approach seems to be the logical way, but I would tend to disagree with that and rather encourage you to manage things on a, on a month-to-month, really daily basis. You can control your consumption wisely. You're going to find your bills are going to be a lot less. I also want to share with you an interesting story, something that I did recently. As I've talked about before, I'm kind of, you know, that I'm in my 50s, I'm, I'm kind of looking at what I would say a more minimalist lifestyle. Since Beth and I moved out of our house into an apartment, space is at a real premium. And so you really start looking at everything you have and you really start questioning, do you need what you have? It's very easy to just hoard stuff. And I've been doing this quite regularly now. I recently came back from a trip, as I talked about last week, from Montana, where I fly fished. And when I fly fish, I usually use one of four different rods. It all just depends on the conditions, the type of water, and there's a lot of factors, the type of fish. 
And so I, I use one of four rods and I use three of them interchangeably almost. The fourth one is really just for big fish when we go to a certain part of the country. But I have seven fly rods. Now I don't need seven fly rods. In fact, one of them I've never ever used. I bought it as a backup rod when I went to Canada last year and I never used it. So as I'm looking for ways of dealing with this space issue, what most people will tend to do is they will go out and get a storage facility. Now this may shock you, but there are actually in this country more storage facilities than there are McDonald's. <laughs> Blew my mind. So I've taken a different approach and my approach is I'm gonna find people to take my stuff. So I belong to a group on Facebook for fly fishermen. And I just put up there, I said, I'm looking to do some downsizing here. Space is a premium. I'm looking to see the value of being a little bit more of a minimalist. I have a number of uh, excess gear. And uh, if there's anybody out there, if you know of anybody who would like to get into fly fishing, but maybe you can't afford it, because I mean, it's not super expensive, but it can get pricey at times, depending on how you do it. You know, just send me a message and I will, um, I'll send you some gear. And uh, it was great because I had like 35 people reach out to me. Now, some were really great stories. I wasn't asking for stories, but you know, obviously if you're gonna pick among people, you're gonna pick the ones who are more compelling. And then there were those that were kind of lame. You know, yeah, send it to me. <laughs> yeah, okay. But at the end of the day, I, I packed up three rods and reels and brought them all down to the FedEx Kinko's place, got them all packaged and shipped them off. And it felt great. It just felt great, not only to have less stuff in my apartment, stuff I didn't use, but stuff that I knew was gonna get used by somebody else. So um, I know I've discussed this in the past with you, but think about that. Think about the, the stuff that you have that you really don't need. Now, if it has sentimental value, keep it. If it's stuff you use, keep it. I'm not encouraging people to, to have less just for the sake of having less. I'm encouraging people to have less for the sake of maybe uh, making their life a little less complex and then also seeing the beauty of um, giving something away. I love giving stuff away to total strangers. Beth and I have been doing this for some time now. We, every uh, Christmas, we, we give cash to strangers. Uh, we have people nominate people that they know, and then we send it anonymously in an envelope. Some people think I'm crazy to put you know $1,000 in an envelope and mail it out, but uh, it'll get there. And if it doesn't, you know, I'm giving it away, so someone will get it. But it's a great feeling. If you've never, um, if you've never given to someone anonymously like that, and I'm not necessarily encouraging to do it, I, I just want you to know it's an incredible reward. You, you've all heard in the past that the benefits of generosity really go to the giver, and it's true. But when I look now at my, my place and it's got less clutter and I know the stuff I have I need, it's, it, it's, it's really powerful. I, I'm also, because again, space is at a premium, I will not buy anything unless I get rid of something first. So being in the city, walking, you do a lot of walking. And I, I found myself, my legs and my, my calves incredibly tired because I, I tend to wear topsiders, which are boating shoes. I'm a product of the, uh, of the 80s when the preppy... <laughs> mode was in. And I've never left using topsiders, but they're awful for walking in the city. They're great if you're on a boat uh, around the pool, but if, if you're walking long distance in the city, forget it. So I'm like, all right, I got to get something better. And so I, what did I do? I tossed the topsiders. They're getting old anyway. And I found another another pair. So I'm trying to keep my, my consumption at that same level. Now, for those of you who know me, I am not an environmentalist. Please, 
but I love simplification. And that's really what, what that was all about. So anyway, go through your stuff and see if there's uh, things you can share with others. I don't know you. Well, maybe I do, but there's a great chance I don't. So please, what I'm about to share with you, take it as education. Don't take it as direct advice for you. If you want direct advice for you, you should talk to your advisor. If you want me to be your advisor, I'll be more than happy to discuss that possibility with you. You can reach out to me a couple of ways. Uh, I recode 513-563-PLAN is my number, 513-563-7526. You can schedule a time to talk to me anytime you want. Or you can do it online. You can go to talk to DC, Dan Capril, talk to DC.com, and my calendar pops up and you can schedule a time right on there, leave your number, and I will give you a call. I'll be more than happy to talk to you about whatever is on your mind. If you ever have a question, just do it that way too. Talk to DC.com or again give my office a call 513 563 7526. So for today's puzzle of the week, we're going to talk about your house. Now, some people love their house. It's like a family heirloom. They've lived in it for many, many, many years. It could be their biggest asset when they die. And the discussion comes down to what are we going to do with it now? Who are we going to leave it to? Now, this could be your primary home. This could be your secondary home. Over the years, I've seen people handle this dilemma a number of ways most of the time in a less than ideal fashion. So let me give you one example that I often see. You know, there was a couple, now it's either a widow or a widower, and the survivor, let's say it's a widow, maybe she's got one child and decides to list the child as a co-owner of the home. Is that a good or bad thing? Well, the obvious question I always says is why are you doing it in the first place? And what I will hear is, well, this way when I die, it'll be their home. But there's a lot of ways that you can skin that cat. You don't have to make them the co-owner to do it. Now, there was a time when such a move could have triggered gift taxes. For most people today, it probably won't, only because the gift tax limitation is very, very high. You have to give significant size gift in order for that to trigger tax. But it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't that high a number. And that became an issue. It might not have triggered tax at the moment, but might have triggered tax later at death. But that's not really what kept me from posing that approach. Again, there's many different ways that we can leave an asset to somebody and making them a co-owner. Well, that's just one way, but it's probably the worst way. And here's why. I have one child. So if I make my son the co-owner of my house, with the idea, joint tenants' right to survivorship. So the idea here is if they pass away, they will own it outright. The problem I have with that is in order for me to sell the house, if I decide I don't want it anymore, guess what? I gotta get his permission. Not only that, since he owns half of it, guess what? Half the proceeds are his. <laughs> yeah, it gets complicated. If he's married, I might need the permission of his spouse before I can sell that house. If he is sued, that house becomes an asset vulnerable in the event of a lawsuit. Just makes no sense. And of course, if I have other children, well, now what happens? There are many ways you can leave your house to others upon death, immediately upon death. The two most common ways I can think of off the top of my head, and there are others, but one would be the utilization of a living trust, 
whereby the home is owned by the trust. You own the trust. The trust owns the home. Upon your death, it transfers to your child, children, automatically. Simple. The other way is transfer on death, TOD. Now, this is state by state, whether you have it. But in Ohio, for example, where I live, I can put a TOD designation on my home, which means upon my death, it will automatically transfer to my son. No questions asked. But until I die, I remain in full control. I have full ownership of the house. All right. So this idea that I'm going to do it simply to transfer the ownership, not a logical way to go. There, there's too many downsides and there's there's alternative strategies. If you don't want to take the time and cost to create a living trust, fine, then you can do the TOD. The advantage to the living trust, though, is if you wanted to put any restrictions on the use of that home after you die, the living trust affords that opportunity. But if you're perfectly comfortable with just leaving it outright, fine. Now, let's talk about, though, whether or not a house is a good asset to leave to somebody to begin with. I've seen this happen many times where somebody has several children, two, three, four, and each child receives 25% of the house. Now, you can only imagine what that's like when you have four people, potentially eight if they're married, all having a say in what to do with this house. It doesn't go very well. Everybody has a different opinion. There are some people who think that the house should stay in the family name or they want it. They may want it, but they don't have enough money to buy out the other three people. There are those who want to sell it, but nobody can agree on what the sale price should be. It can be a really a mess. If it's a vacation home, now you've got usually a lot of emotional attachment to it because they view this as an enjoyable asset where they had a lot of good memories. And now there's arguments over who gets to use the house and when and who pays their fair share, et cetera. And then, of course, you have those who never wanted it in the first place. So they're completely disinterested. They resent the fact that they have to pay for anything because they really don't want it. But that's a big part of their inheritance, potentially. So they don't want to just walk away. Now, whose fault is all this? Well, it's on mom's fault or dad's fault because... They should have consulted with the kids before they chose to leave them the asset. So whether you own a single home, your primary home, or whether you have a secondary home, I want to give you a little bit of advice on how to deal with this issue about leaving your house to your kids, should that be something you're contemplating doing. And you know, and even if it's not, you don't know when you're going to die. So you certainly want to strategize for this because it sadly could happen at any point in time. All right. Whenever I have this come up with a client, the first thing I recommend we do is we have a family meeting and we get everybody together and we talk about not just the house, but we talk about other things that they stand to inherit. I call this the generations meeting. And I'm interested in them hearing what they could potentially inherit and see whether or not they want it. Because if they don't want it, that helps. Maybe somebody else wants it. And of course, then we can do some adjustments to the estate plan. So if let's say we have four children and one says, look, I don't want the house at all. Fine. How about we leave the house then to three people and you get more of something else? Or of the four of you who stand to inherit the house, let's try to figure out who wants it the most. Is there anyone here who would maintain the ownership of the house and use it, live in it, et cetera? 
Now, if no one raises their hand, guess what? That house is going to get sold. Fine. Let's plan on selling it then. Let's not just leave it to chance. Let's structure the estate plan so that the instructions are in place to immediately sell the home. And let's name somebody as the control person on that decision. So now we don't have to involve people who don't want to be involved. But if one child raises his hand and says, no, no, I want this home. I'll live in this home. I think it's a great home, et cetera, fine. You can have the home, but you will not inherit other things to offset the cost so that everybody else will come out even. You see the point? There's no reason to leave one-fourth of every single asset to every single child member. I mean, I think if, you, if you're wanting it to be equitable, and by the way, there's no law that says you have to be equitable to your kids, especially if some have disadvantages that the others don't have. But you can easily say, okay, Johnny, you get the home, but Billy, you're going to get more of my portfolio. And so at the end of the day, you're both going to be the same. Understand that the home is a great thing to inherit from a tax standpoint, simply because upon inheriting it, the new owner gets what we call a step up in basis. So let's say you pay $200,000 for your home. It's now worth $500,000. Well, if I inherit that $500,000 house, I can turn around and sell it, and I won't pay a dollar in tax because I get a step up in cost basis. Whatever it was worth at the time of your death, if I sell it at that price or less, I pay no capital gain tax at all. However, if you leave me a half a million dollar IRA, I'm not going to get to keep $500,000. It's going to be considered income to me, and I might walk away with 300000 so we have to be a little bit mindful of that as we go forward. Not all assets are the same, which again is why this meeting, this generation's meeting is so important so we can get a real understanding about what everybody wants. If you do decide to leave it to them and they maybe decide to keep the house for a while, another issue is maintaining cost. Everybody's going to have to pay a share of the property taxes and the insurance and the utilities and all those other things. Therefore, in developing your estate plan, you might want to consider having some money set aside from your estate specifically for that. Now, how you structure that, there's a number of ways, and I'm not an attorney, so I'm not going to get into the nuts and bolts of how to do it. I just want to give you the idea. If I leave somebody a $500,000 lake home, and I know it's going to cost 30, 40 grand a year to maintain that home. If I don't provide some of the liquidity for the first few years to do that maintenance, well, the home may fall into disrepair. It may become a, a topic of argument between the kids. It could be the reason it get, ultimately gets sold because it's just too expensive to maintain. We've seen a lot of examples over the years where people have had to sell assets that they inherited simply because they didn't have enough cash to support the asset. From personal experience, I found that most children don't have a huge attachment to the house, or if they do, their spouse doesn't. There are exceptions, but I find that that's usually not the case. The kids have developed their own lifestyle, et cetera. What I find most heirs want is equitable. They want it to be equitable. Whatever Johnny gets, Billy wants equal amount in value. Resentment usually comes when they don't perceive those values as being equal. And again, if you were going to leave one a house and the other an IRA of same value, well, the one with the house probably got the better deal because of the tax implications involved. Now, there's more service costs to doing it, you know, to having the house, but 
you know, he can turn around and sell it and it won't be much of a problem. All right. So this issue of leaving real estate can get complicated. Again, the first thing is, how do we do it? Well, I, I don't recommend joint ownership while you're alive. If you're the owner, you and your spouse should be the owners. That's it. I don't see any reason why it makes sense to bring another person in. It can create a lot of complexities, unforeseen consequences. We can certainly pass that asset over through the use of a transfer on death or a living trust or something along those lines. But if we're going to leave it, if we're going to leave that asset to others, then what we need to do is be darn sure that whoever gets it wants it. And if nobody wants it, that there is a plan in place for disposing it. Otherwise, this can become a major, major contention issue. And there's really nothing worse than to see children who are mourning the loss of their parents become bitter with one another over something like a house. But it happens all the time. So give it a lot of thought. Have that meeting, have that generations meeting where you're sitting down and having that discussion. Now, again, if you have any questions about that, you want to talk more about it, reach out to me. I'm more than happy to talk with you. 513-563-PLAN is my direct line, 513-563-7526. Or go to talktodc.com, and I'll be more than happy to um, answer your questions and see how I may be able to help. So, as we do in every episode, we give you a little bit of homework, and you can imagine what the homework is here. I want you to do a few things. Number one, I want you to have a clear understanding about what your estate plan currently says about your house. How is your house being left? Is it very general as to who gets it or is it very specific? Now I will tell you if your house is going to be transferred via your will through probate, you may have chosen the slowest and most expensive way to do that. Again, not a lawyer, not trying to play one on the radio, but I do know that probate can be slow, it can be expensive, it works, but I always find the people who like probate the most are the attorneys. That's because they get paid more. So first, if you haven't updated your estate plan in a while, do so. Talk to your attorney, see how you can transfer that house without having to go through probate to do so. Then make sure your kids actually want it. Because if they don't want it, then you can make the process a lot easier by making sure that the home gets sold quickly. You could even appoint somebody to oversee that if you didn't want to do a family member. If they do want it, make sure that whoever does receive it has enough liquidity in order to maintain it. Otherwise, they'll turn around and sell it, and they'll probably sell it for less because they'll be eager to get rid of it. So have that meeting. I have put on the download a couple of articles I came across on this subject, so feel free to read those at your leisure. If you have any questions, again, feel free to reach out to me. 513-563-PLAN is my number, 513-563-7526. Or go to talktodc.com. Those are my initials, Dan Capril, talktodc.com. And you can schedule time to talk to me at any time. Until next time, I want to thank you for listening to Solving the Financial Puzzle. Thanks for tuning in to Solving the Financial Puzzle. If you want to find out more about Dan Capril or about today's topic, visit matsonandcapril.com. And be sure to join us for the next edition of Solving the Financial Puzzle.
Information provided on today's show is provided for information purposes only and does not constitute investment, tax, or legal advice. Information has been obtained from sources that are deemed to be reliable, but their accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Always consult with an investment, legal, or tax professional before taking any action. Dan Capril is an investment advisor representative of MPM Wealth Advisors and Capril Wealth Coaching, LLC. Both firms are registered investment advisors. To obtain a copy of Form ADV and a private policy statement for either firm, call 800-353-7923.